We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. This is Tom Leander, and you're listening to the Timeline podcast with Mike and Sam. He elevates and detonates. It's a great day to be a Suns fan and a member of the Suns family. As we welcome Monty Williams as the next coach for the Phoenix Suns. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns Podcast. I'm so excited for the episode that we have today for you. Uh, because you get to talk to me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's because of Sam. <laughs> no, I'm Mike Hill. Sam Cooper, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Mike. I am also excited for who we get to talk to later. Yes, join, joining us later in this podcast is the voice of the Phoenix Suns for Fox Sports Arizona, K-Ray. K-Ray came on and talked to us. I still can't believe it. Uh, but before we get to that, there was a press conference today introducing Monty Williams, the new coach of the Phoenix Suns, to the Phoenix Suns fan base. A pretty interesting overall press conference with just James Jones and Monty on stage where they answered a few questions. It was pretty interesting to watch, right, Sam? Yeah, and actually, first of all, it's important that you note just James Jones and Monty Williams on stage. Yeah. Was that intentional like an intentional way for them to eliminate the ambiguity about james jones versus jeff bauer versus whoever robert sarver do you think that was an intentional move i do i absolutely do and i have to be honest i liked it i thought it was a a nice show of respect for james jones and the position that he holds but i also thought that it was a less of a dis- what could have been a distraction when you're trying to introduce uh, Monty Williams. Just get up there with the general manager, the guy that hired him, and with the new coach, and let them talk and let all the questions be answered. And that's really it. I thought that was a smart approach 
to this uh, introductory press conference, and I thought it was, you know, I'll be honest, it was kind of boring, as introductory <laughs> press conferences can be, but uh, the approach that they took from the top, I'd say, was pretty interesting. Yeah, there aren't any major conclusions that we can draw from today. I picked out a few things. There's still some, there's some interesting clips, and we're going to play them in a minute. But Yeah, I, I picked out a few things that I thought would be interesting to talk about, and then we'll give our overall thoughts on it. But there was a few answers to some questions that I thought merited some discussion at the very least. Um, I do want to thank all the reporters who were at this press conference. I thought they did a great job. They asked some good questions. They got the most. They made them? the most out of the situation. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to get too specific on that. They mo- made the most out of what these press conferences can be. I, I, you know, it wasn't, you know, Magic Johnson Lakers reality show season finale quitting in front of the entire room press conference level of d- drama and 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 intrigue but i thought they did a good job asking some interesting questions about how he feels about the suns how he feels about the job and everything about that and as long as you're mentioning that the lakers had their introductory press conference for frank vogel today and someone asked rob palinka tell us what went wrong in the coaching search (laughs) oh my god (laughs) and the look funny the look on vogel's face was priceless it was, and I tweeted this, but it was a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode, basically. <laughs> the music played in my mind as the camera slowly zoomed into Frank Vogel's face. Um, I feel bad for him. Frank Vogel seems like a good guy, so I have nothing against him. But that's the Lakers media. That's that's what it's like to be in L.A. That's the kind of things they have to deal with. Luckily, and maybe even part of the reason why Monty came here, you don't really have to deal with that kind of level of media scrutiny in Phoenix, it's a smaller market. There were a lot of people there at the press conference, though. You could hear it when they applauded. There were a lot of different people asking questions. And let's get right into it. Let's listen to a few answers that Monty gave and give our thoughts on them. The first one was about the roster. So let's take a listen to how Monty feels about the Phoenix Suns roster. The, the guys are talented on this team. And when I watch film, I see... In Devin, I see a guy who could be a household name here soon. Um, he's, he reminds me so much of a, a Brandon Roy, who I coached in Portland. And uh, at the time, Brandon, Dwayne Wade, and Kobe Bryant, when we were in Portland, they were running the league. And I feel like Devin has a chance to uh, be like that or eclipse that. I feel like he has the game that can... Uh, not only put up points in the regular season, but he has a game that's fit for the playoffs. And anytime you can give the ball to a player and get a bucket, that, that's a luxury. And I feel like Devin has that ability. And DeAndre, uh, the skill set that he has and the ability that he has at that age um, is exciting. And so I'll have to dive into the film a ton more to give you a better answer. Um, and I'm doing that as we speak. Um, young teams typically um, get out to big leads, and then the late third quarter, early fourth quarter, you'll see a break uh, where a veteran team or a more experienced team can overcome a young team. And I think it just takes time uh, to understand how to play for 48 minutes plus, and I think that's something that our guys are going to embrace. Interesting answer from the coach, the new coach of the Phoenix Suns. They're talking about the roster, making some comparison. What did you think about that answer, Sam? Well, I think it's interesting on a few levels, actually. First of all, of course he's going to say the roster is talented. You know, he's right. not, not going to come out and say, I've been handed garbage. However, in this press conference, except for one question where Josh Jackson was specifically called out and he was addressing 
Josh Jackson. Uh, the only players that Monty brought up of his own accord were Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Mikhail Bridges, who was in attendance today, and Kelly Oubre. And I think that's interesting because essentially it's not so much that the roster is talented top to bottom, it's that the roster is top heavy. And Monty probably is telling the truth when he really does see the potential in Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. And I really do believe that he's excited about building an offense with those two at its foundation. But on the other hand, he's probably expecting a lot of roster turnover this summer. I'm, you know, even wouldn't be surprised if James Jones has already told him that to expect a lot of uh, roster turnover this summer and that there might only be three or four main guys who are getting minutes last summer that are even returning or, or sorry, last season that are even returning in the first place. Are there any players that you can think of that he should have mentioned besides those guys? Maybe TJ Warren, uh, Josh Jackson, obviously the question came later. Yeah. I mean, Josh Jackson a year ago was being hailed as, you know, the timeline. He was a major part of the timeline. He was coming off a bad rookie season, but, but you know, there was still a lot of optimism about him. TJ Warren made great strides this year as a three point shooter. I'm just saying, I don't think him not calling out those players is his way of saying those players are bad. I think it's that there's so much uncertainty about them that it's like, why even bring it up in the first place? There's a good chance TJ Warren is gone. There's a good chance Josh Jackson, Tyler Johnson, Rashawn Holmes, all of these guys could be gone. DeAnthony Melton and Elliot Kobo, you know, young players, but you never know what's going to happen. Not worth giving a shout out to them either. So I'm just saying that's where that comes from. But then the other thing that I think was interesting is a lot of people ran with this, and this is why he specifically said, I don't want to box any of these players in. But a lot of people ran with the Brandon Roy comparison. Yeah, and I think that comparison was interesting uh, for a lot of reasons. I think that they are very similar. I think Suns, Suns fans have made the Brandon Roy comparison in the past, and I, it makes a lot of sense. I, I love the way he talked about how Brandon Roy, Kobe Bryant, those guys were running the league back in the day. And I think Brandon Roy has been a bit of a forgotten player in NBA history for how good he was at his absolute peak in a team that was actually pretty good as well, making the playoffs consistently. And of course, he that whole team was devastated by injuries that made them sort of fall short of what their expectations were. I, I think that the comparison is interesting for a few reasons. First of all, first of all, they're they're very similar players. Brandon Roy's quicker. He's probably got a little better of a ball handling skill at his peak. Devin Booker's nowhere near his peak, so we'll see how that develops over time. Uh, they like to shoot mid-range shots, both Devin Booker and Brandon Roy. They can pull up from three. They are capable of pulling up from three. Uh, Brandon Roy is another right-handed player who likes to drive left, something that Devin Booker loves to do, something that I think is a very similar thing in both of those guys. But I also think bringing up that Portland team that he was an assistant coach on is interesting for more than just that reason alone. I think Brandon Roy's on that team, obviously, but they also had two big men in LaMarcus Aldridge and Greg Oden. Greg Oden obviously didn't play a lot of games, but I think the interplay between those two players is something that you can expect out of uh, Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. There's a lot to learn from that. But I also found interesting in going back and watching some Brandon Roy highlights after uh, after this press conference was they had Nicholas Batum on that team as well. Yeah. And I think the comparison between Mikhail Bridges and Nicholas Batum, something that you and I, Sam, have talked about on this podcast in the past, is even more interesting now that we have a coach that's worked with that player as well. And although this team is different in that 
the NBA is different now uh, because, you know, that that Portland team would have probably shot a lot more threes. I mean, that's the obvious comparison with teams from the past and teams now. Uh, the the overall play style between a ball dominant guard that can uh, is capable of handling the ball, but also can play off the ball consistently, and a big man who has some range and is capable of getting to the rim uh, at will is interesting. Along with a versatile sort of Swiss Army knife defender on the wing, I think that those three guys are are very similar, and I think we can expect something similar. You know, it's another thing where we look at it and say, okay, it makes sense that James Jones, Robert Sarver, Jeff Bauer were interested in a guy like. Monty Williams. What did you think about that Brandon Roy comparison? Uh, yeah, I thought the Brandon Roy comparison was really good. To talk about DeAndre Ayton a little bit, I think Ayton is, uh, <laughs> like you said, just an interesting mix of Greg Oden and uh, LaMarcus Aldridge. You talk about Brandon Roy being a forgotten figure in NBA history. Greg Oden, also a forgotten figure. He only played 21 games in his sophomore season uh, as a starter for Portland, but in those 21 games, He was shooting 61% from the field and averaged 11 points, 9 rebounds, and 2 blocks in 24 minutes. He was on his path, had injuries not derailed his career, to be a phenomenal starting center. Uh, And paired with Aldridge, I mean, Aldridge uh, has a mid-range game that is really reminiscent of what Aiton is doing right now, also playing in the post. Uh, I think there are a lot of similarities there, but he was never the rim runner that Greg Oden was. Uh, and that DeAndre Ayton currently is. So I just think it's interesting how Ayton is sort of uh, a mix of those guys' offensive profiles, and hopefully Monty can really tap into that. With Batum, I think the interesting thing about Batum is that he was a low-usage player for several years, uh, and then the playmaking really started to come out around year four or five. But you always saw these signs of it potentially being there in the early seasons, in addition to him being a good defender, in addition to him being a good three-point shooter, these signs that when he did get the ball... He was capable of being creative with it. He always maintained a good assist to turnover ratio. And that's something that I think we've already seen out of Mikhail Bridges as well. I don't think Mikhail Bridges is on the path to becoming a five to six assist guy like Nicholas Batum necessarily. But I wouldn't be surprised if a few years down the line, if he can develop enough of an offensive game to to be given the ball a little bit more and be put in positions where he gets to be a little bit more creative. I think he could really flourish in that that similar sort of role, maybe become a guy who averages three, four, even five assists per game. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's going to be really interesting. And I think the, the answer to the next question I got clipped out here is relevant to this conversation because Monty was also asked about the style of play that he expects to implement with the Phoenix Suns. And let's hear how he talked about that. The, the way that I'd like to play will be based on our team. Um, we don't know right now what the team is going to look like um, but we will play through Devin and DeAndre um, those guys have the ability to, to draw double teams uh, and make other players better um, obviously you want to play fast but for me playing fast does not mean rushing the ball down the floor um, there's nothing proven that says rushing the ball down the floor uh, leads to wins um, a couple of years ago Brooklyn was uh, leading the league in pace, but they didn't have a great record because they were young. And, and now I would say that's changed a little bit. Uh, for me, pace is playing quickly with the ball and under control. So either shoot it, drive it, or move it. But holding the ball, if you watch the playoffs, anytime a, a guy holds the ball, you allow the defense to get into a load position, and it's easier to guard. 
one of the things I did learn in San Antonio was they had a wear down effect. Uh, the ball movement, player movement uh, would wear teams out. And then in the fourth quarter, they would take that Spurs push and they'd be up by 10 to 15 and the game would be over. And you can see that with Golden State, um, the way they beat, they beat Portland. Uh, the ball movement, player movement, it just wears you out. And so we want to adopt some of those things. And at the same time, I don't want to take away from the creativity that Devin has. Yeah, he's, he's a special player, and I don't want to get in the way of that. Uh, defensively, we have a lot to improve on. Uh, we got a transition will be where our defensive world starts. And we have to be able to take away the three ball. We're no different than any other program. Everybody wants to take away the three ball, and you have to be able to rebound once you do that. And so it takes time to put that kind of defensive system in. Um, hopefully, with our staff that we're trying to put together, we'll be able to do that, but it's going to take time. Interesting answer to that question, and there's so much in there. I'll be honest, I really, really liked the answer to this question. I think a lot of people online are sort of latching on to the comments about pace and uh, the, the fear that he's not going to be, uh, you know, a style of play that, that's played now. It's, it's a high-speed, high-pace uh, league that we're in right now, but I think what he's talking about is playing with speed either in transition but also decision-making speed. And this is something that I think he's clearly bringing from Popovich. He talked about you either shoot it, drive it, or move it. And I like that, those phrases. First of all, that's a good way to, to put it. But with the Spurs, the 2014 Spurs is the obvious example here. That the offense beautiful was game. the beautiful game. Everyone's favorite, yeah. But what they did is there was no holding the ball once the offense started moving. Once you caught the ball, if you weren't immediately passing it, you either had to shoot or you were driving towards the basket or around a screen, of course. And uh, I think that's an interesting thing to put. This is, Of course, this is what every team wants to do. And whether or not he can implement it with whatever the roster looks like later on, once they're actually put together, is going to be interesting. But one thing I really liked about what he said about that is how much it had a wear down effect over the course of of a 48-minute game. We all know, as Suns fans, we all know that playing the Spurs, you cannot let up. You have to play until the very end. And commonly with the Spurs, they'll beat you up a little bit throughout the game. And maybe you'll get an early lead, but they never give up. They, they will go till the very last minute. And if you are wearing almost like a prize fighter, letting someone punch their way out of a fight, exhaust the team by constantly moving the ball, exhaust the team by never stopping offensively and forcing them to constantly move. And then by the end of the game, they're tired, but you're still within that move. Remember, the ball always moves faster than a player. So if you can properly move the ball, it's not as tiring offensively, but it's pretty exhausting defensively because you're chasing that ball around. Um, and of course, he talked a little bit about the create not limiting Devin Booker's creativity within that. And I thought that was a smart point to make because, you know, Devin Booker thinking about giving the ball up while well, he's played with a lot of garbage teammates over the last few years. It, in a lot of ways, it never really made sense for him to give up the ball in a, in a sort of movement style offense because there were not a lot of other offensive threats. So I think hedging a little bit at the end there. Uh, was smart of him to do. And we'll talk about defense in a minute, but what did you think about his comments offensively as far as the style of play? I just like the fact that you brought up Devin Booker's quality of teammates because moving the ball and, and quick decision-making, it's something that Igor emphasized as well. And it's something that can only be properly executed if you have playmakers on your team, which the Suns just didn't. 
this past season. So that's really something where James Jones just needs to get off his ass and, and find some better players over the summer. <clears throat> that being said, once you have that roster in place, it's probably your best option. The alternative is to do what the Houston Rockets do and have, you know, over 50% of your possessions end up with Chris Paul or, or James Harden winding down the shot clock until there's three seconds left and then taking a step back. Yeah, that strategy only works if you have a player like James Harden, who is a truly transcendent offensive talent that you can take that much of a load off the rest of your offense. Devin Booker, as good as he is, uh, we you know can't afford to put him in that position and expect to succeed. So if the Suns want to see any level of uh, success, they do need to emphasize that quick decision making. Um, beyond that, I don't know. I just I, I don't know exactly where he's leaning here. It seems like maybe we should expect middle of the road type of pace statistics, not too fast, not too slow. He does say that thing about um, he doesn't like rushing the ball down the floor, but I hope he he doesn't mean to somehow limit the team's transition opportunities because transition opportunities are the easiest way to get a quick bucket if you can. Well, the thing that he said about building the style of play around the uh, the roster that he has is probably why he focused on not rushing the ball down the floor. Until we get players that are really good in transition beyond Devin Booker, and then in some cases TJ Warren, although he's not the playmaker that you really need to be in a fast-break situation, it does make sense to not make them rush. You know, I think that if we get a point guard on this team, not that there's any available, but if we had a point guard that excelled in transition, this would probably be more of a transition game. It'll be interesting to see how this jives with what DeAndre Ayton talked about at the end of the season in wanting to grab the ball and go on rebounds uh, because that's not, I don't know if that really fits into what he, he talked about here. The other part was defensively and I think there's really not a lot to talk about in his in what he talked about defensively I think I think it's good that he acknowledged that there's a ton of work to do defensively but I mean talking about limiting threes and limiting transition that's what every team is trying to do just like he said so I don't think there's a lot there's nothing revolutionary there uh, the the next thing I wanted to listen to here is a very interesting answer. So uh, shout out to, I believe it was Dwayne Rankin, because I thought this was a really good question. He asked him directly about his conversation with Sarver. What was like? What was that like and what about it convinced you, I think, to to join the Suns organization? As, as you know, the, not the greatest reputation right now. So let's take a listen to how Monty talked about that. Number one, um, in my conversations with Mr. Sarver, I saw... Uh, someone who didn't duck Mr. Sarver. Um, the tough questions. We both had tough questions for each other. And in this day and age where people throw each other under the bus, make excuses, blame, I didn't see that. I saw um, a man who really wants to bring success to this city. And I mean that with all of my heart, um, or I wouldn't have come. Um, James and I uh, or a lot alike in that we, we just want to do the right things. And I saw that with Mr. Sarver. Um, for him to take ownership of his past was huge for me because I had to do the same thing. He had tough questions for me. And if you look at my past, I've done some things, said some things in the media that I wish I could have taken back. Um, and so that's what I saw. I, I saw... Um, a man who's passionate, a man who cares about the city. Um, in, in our conversations, I, I just felt that. I felt like he really wants to bring something to the city that's pretty cool, and I wanted to be a part of that. 
another interesting answer, I think, you know, there was a lot of questions asked, and these are the most interesting ones in my opinion, but Mr. Sarver, of course, flew down and interviewed Monty Williams on his own. I just think it's odd. Okay, I'm, I'll talk about it. I talked about it on Twitter. Mr. Sarver, why does everyone call... It's not a coincidence that every single person is calling him Mr. I've heard, Sarver at I've this heard point. people call him Robert before, but they're not on well, a... He just hired him. They're not on a first name basis like that. The reporters call him Robert. Dwayne called him Robert when he, when he talked about... Uh, when he asked him this question, but... Uh, DeAndre Ayton calls him Mr. Sarver. Devin Booker calls him Mr. Sarver. Larry Fitzgerald calls him Mr. Sarver. Jamal Crawford calls him Mr. Sarver. Uh, and now Monty Williams is calling him Mr. Sarver. I've also heard James Jones call him Mr. Sarver. That's a pretty big contingent of Mr. Sarverers. So it's just something that I've noticed. And I think it's odd a little bit. But uh, I don't know what you do call him, Robert. It, that that sounds weird, too. So I get why Bobby. they're calling him Mr. Sarver. <laughs> old Bobby. Old Bobby S. Uh, <laughs> the owner of the Suns. A couple of things that he mentioned here that I find interesting. Well, here's what I want to say, actually. This is a weird point, and forgive me for the hot take here, but take with all the hate, hot with all the hit alert. pieces Whoa. written about Robert Sarver for the last few weeks, weirdly, his reputation has gotten almost better with the way that people talk about him. And I know, okay, let me, let me explain that. Throughout all of this, there are constantly people calling out his mistakes. There's people saying that he's hired the wrong people. There's people saying that he interferes too much. All things that we've heard before. But even with a Kevin Pelton piece, every single person, including now with Monty Williams, has talked about how he has acknowledged his mistakes. He has said that he uh, has made mistakes in the past and wants to fix them. He says that he cares a lot about the team. They say that he cares a lot about the city. This is this is just another time where they've talked about this. And I find it interesting that Robert Sarver seems like a great guy to the people that are around uh, him. And generally with like, leaders... Well, here's what I mean. Generally with leaders that make this many bad decisions, it trickles out. People start saying, you know, he's they suck. They're, they're bad. They're hard to work for. All of that. And I find it interesting that... With all the terrible decisions and all the news about the terrible decisions, people seem to be defending his individual personality. I haven't met a lot of people that people will go to bat for their personality but trash them um, and their decision-making. But did you find anything interesting about this answer beyond that? Mike, you ignorant slut. (laughs) You fell right into the propaganda trap. Look, first, here's the thing. If you want to know why there isn't a media crusade out on Robert Sarver right now, it's because they found a new target. It's the Los Angeles Lakers. They can get way more of an audience by focusing on the dysfunction of the Lakers right now. So the only reason that we're not getting more Arnovitz uh, or Pelton hit pieces on Sarver is because they have a new target. But beyond that, I mean, why am I to trust what Monty Williams is saying here? Obviously, he can't say. Of course. The, the true answer could very well be, well, he's paying me money. In fact, that probably is what it is. Well, he did kind of say that, actually. Yeah, well, he actually did kind of say and, and we didn't, yeah. we didn't single that one out to no. play. But what does he say there? He says something like, um, well, they hired me. Yeah, they hired me. That was like literally the first thing he said. <laughs> I don't know, dude. There's, I just don't. You're jumping the gun. Well, here's what I think. Of course, Monty Williams is defending him here. It's, it's his boss now. 
But there's no reason for Kevin Arnovitz to do it. He's literally writing a hit piece on him. So I found it interesting that it trickled its way into that as well. And then somebody like, say, Larry Fitzgerald. I know I have a lot of respect for Larry Fitzgerald, but there's no reason for him to talk about it either. It's just the people that are close to him, the people that are friends with him, of course, are defending him. And there's just not a lot of that when it comes to, like you said, the Lakers or Jeannie Buss or even Dolan with the Knicks. There's just not a lot of that kind of defense around him. And maybe it's just smart PR. Maybe it's just a guy who really knows how to play that PR machine, but in the past, <laughs> he didn't. So I, I just doubt that as well. Uh, I, I do wonder, he talked about tough questions both ways. He also talked about stuff that he said in the media that he wishes he could take back. I do wonder what those are. I wonder what those tough questions were asked of Monty. I wonder what the tough questions he asked of Sarver are. I'm sure we'll never know, but um, it was some nice insight into what that interview was like. Yeah, if anything, that was a more uh, insightful part of the answer to me. I don't care uh, about Sarver as much as I care about Monty talking about his career and, and how he's grown to be less stubborn over the years as a guy who who coached superstars before and Chris Paul and Anthony Davis and more recently as an assistant coach. That was the most important thing I think for me to hear um, is that he's not just coming in with the attitude of he's been a head coach before so he knows how to run it and, and he's going to have a certain style and he's going to be stuck in that style um, but that he's open to change. It was also interesting to hear him talk about how it, he even used the words like he was basically a head coach with the Sixers the past year because that's how Brett Brown operates. Like Brett Brown supposedly uh, offers quite a bit of leeway um, or autonomy to his assistant coaches. Uh, so I wonder if that's going to be a similar sort of thing and and how much uh, Monty's choice of assistant coaching staff is is going to play into his time here in Phoenix. Yeah, I think that's probably some of the news that'll trickle out over the next week or so, assuming it's not guys in the playoffs, and I doubt it will be. There's only three teams left. So that'll be an interesting thing to see. How how will he fill out the rest of his uh, coaching staff? And, and hope, well, of course, we'll be here to talk about it as soon as it does happen. The next question, and this was, I think, to me, the most interesting part of the entire thing. There was a question about his managerial style. This one came from Gina Mizell. Shout out to Gina. I thought this was a good question too because he started laughing immediately. And I think there was something about the words that she used in asking the question that triggered some bad memories for Monty Williams. And and you'll see what I mean here because this is about his time with the New Orleans Pelicans and what he learned. Let's listen. When I first started coaching in New Orleans, um, I didn't even... I thought I had the answers. I was a lot younger, uh, probably more brash, more stubborn. Um, now I'm just starting to figure out the questions, uh, if that makes sense. And I'm, I'm probably in a place in my life where I, I'm more apt to listen and delegate more. Um, my coaching style is probably based on servanthood. Uh, I, I, that's my heart, is to serve the organization to serve the players, um, to put the people that I work with in a position to be successful. Um, I want guys to be excited to come to work. I want the players to be excited about what we're doing. That doesn't mean we're not going to work hard, and that doesn't mean I'm not going to tell them the truth. But I think as I've evolved as a coach, um, I understand the difference between telling someone the truth and embarrassing them. And that was one of my flaws in, in New Orleans. Um, my truth-telling at times could embarrass players. And that was something that I had to deal with. And I spent a lot of time talking to former players. And they would always say, Coach, I love playing for you, but. And the but was something that I had to work on. And 
I shamefully admit to you that I wasn't happy with that. And so I've had four years and a lot of experiences, um, and I've talked to a lot of people, and uh, hopefully I've improved in that area. Yeah, uh, his time with the New Orleans Pelicans was interesting for many reasons. One of the things that Shamit talked to us about when he, Shamit Dua, the uh, person who covers the New Orleans Pelicans for the Blue Wire Podcast Network, he joined us a few weeks ago. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that very insightful interview. Someone who covered Monty for a long time, he talked about Monty putting players in the doghouse for many different reasons, uh, sometimes on the court, sometimes off the court. And I think this was indirect. This was directly addressing that from what I can tell. Of course, I don't know the full story there with New Orleans, but he talked directly about the difference between telling the truth and embarrassing players. I thought that was really interesting. Acknowledging faults in his style of leadership in the past and understanding how he can change is a good sign. It's a sign of someone who is very self-reflective, someone who wants to get better at their job, someone who understands that they don't know everything. What did you think about this answer, Sam? I'm just curious uh, which Pelicans team or which Hornets team he was talking about because year one, Monty Williams, young players might actually be more willing to take that sort of, I don't want to call it abuse, that honesty. Veterans aren't going to stand for that. And when Monty Williams first came to New Orleans, he had, at that point, a veteran Chris Paul was a superstar of the team. David West, Emeka Okafor, Carl Landry, Willie Green, like, you know, not old players, but players who were in their late 20s, players who had been around before and were probably expecting to be treated a certain way. Literally, there wasn't a player in that team's rotation under the age of 24. So I think if you go in as a first-year head coach with that sort of attitude, you're going to run into some problems. And, uh, and, you know, sure enough, that was Chris Paul's last season in New Orleans, and then the team blew it up. But if he was talking about years two and three when he was really dealing with a rebuilding team, you might still run into some disagreements. But I think it's a little bit easier to coach young players through that sort of honesty because they, they quite honestly don't know what they're doing a lot of the time. I think that's something we've seen with the Suns over the past few years. Um, and, you know, sometimes if it's constructive criticism, I'm sure they appreciate the feedback. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's actually a really interesting point to make because he talked about his relationship with Chris Paul a little bit outside of that question, and uh, there was nothing odd or nothing interesting (laughs) about what he said when it came to his relationship with Chris Paul, but there's been a lot of talk about how that went. It seems like they didn't really quite see eye to eye, so maybe it was directly about Chris Paul. In my mind, when I first heard that question, I was actually picturing some of the later teams um, but even beyond that, he was talking about his entire time with New Orleans and what he's learned since then. So I think the point of it was that he understands his faults, understands his mistakes. And, and you know, as a fan base, all we can really do is hope that he's learning from that and hope that uh, he's making some changes that would positively benefit the Suns in the future. An interesting press conference all around with a lot of boring parts, so a few interesting moments. Um what did you think, just beyond what we talked about, is there anything else that stuck out to you or anything else that you wanted to talk about from that press conference? Honestly, no. There's not a lot. It's Yeah, like what, what big answers did we really get today? <laughs> yeah, not much. I would say not much. You know, of course, I think we got a good sense of who he is, how he acts around the media. Not overly bombastic, seems to be very measured. He thanked God first. He did thank God Without first. Making, you know, Something that anything political, but he he thanked God first, and then Mr. Sarver. We've talked about his religious roots before. You know that's the yeah. type of man he is. Yeah, if there were odds to to bet on that, 
whether or not Monty Williams was going to thank God first in his press conference, I would have put my entire bank account on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's something that I would have guaranteed would have happened. But I I agree with you. I think that we're going to get a lot more insight into what uh, the plans are for this team in the way that he fills out his coaching staff than this press conference as a whole. Uh, So we'll move on from that because we have a very interesting interview coming up with K-Ray, something that we've already recorded. I think Suns fans are really going to enjoy it. You get to hear about how he felt this season went for him, what EJ is like, and, and how much freedom they feel like they have in that broadcast booth, and who the coach that stands in front of them the most is. <laughs> so get uh, we'll get to that as soon as possible, but first let's talk a little bit about Harry's Razors. Harry's Razors is helping Blue Wire listeners with a better shaving experience. Go to harrys.com slash bluewire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Enough with the cheap razors. Go to Harry's now. It's just $3 for our loyal listeners. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for 95 years. Join the 10 million who've tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your razor for just $3. Okay, I'm really excited about this. Joining us on the timeline is the voice of the Phoenix Suns, the man who called the games for Fox Sports Arizona, Kevin Ray. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing great, uh, and great to be on with you guys. I appreciate the invite. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This was your first year doing play-by-play, although you've worked with the team for a long time. Uh, Just from your perspective, how did it go this year? Uh, Went went great. Yeah, this was actually uh, year two for me. Um, But uh, to your point, yeah, it's it's uh, I've had a long, long run, a long history with the uh, with the organization starting way back in the day, working for at that time, KTAR, uh, which is now Arizona Sports, but uh, uh, started, you know, back as a reporter in the locker room and then hosting the the radio pre and post game show. And then moving on to the TV, pre and post game, doing sidelines. And then, as, uh, as I mentioned, just wrapping up year two on the play-by-play with, uh, with Eddie Johnson and uh, the Hall of Famer Ann Myers-Drysdale. Yeah, I, th- I think it went really well. I think you did an excellent job. You know, <laughs> with Eddie Johnson, that's a real interesting combination. Eddie is so funny, uh, and, and you guys had a great rapport. It's an interesting season. You know, you guys can be really funny on the air. Of course, you always have to focus on the game. The Suns, of course, have struggled over the last few years, uh, maybe struggled to win a lot of games. They've been in a lot of blowouts. How much freedom do you feel in the, those times where the game maybe isn't very close anymore to have some more fun with Eddie Johnson or Ann Meyer, Myers Drysdale? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it certainly, it, you know, look, nobody nobody wants to lose, nobody likes to lose, and certainly uh, it is no fun losing by some of the wide margins that we've experienced the last couple of years. But it, it really goes back to the rapport that I've got with both my partners 
in uh, in Annie, who I've worked a lot of years doing Phoenix Mercury play by play. And of course, Eddie and I, because of my time uh, with the organization in one capacity or another, um, Eddie and I are, are great friends on top of being, you know, broadcast partners. So that helps. And I think certainly his experience uh, over the last four or five years as an NBA radio host also has been a big contributing factor. And it really does just allow us, as we like to say sometimes, going to talk radio mode in some of those uh, blowout <laughs> situations. And because he can bring both insightfulness, um, still educate, but you know, bring a a, um, a certain level of levity to the to the situation as well. As a former player, long time, he's been on both sides of it. So we, you know, we try not overthink it. Uh, it is difficult, uh, but at the same time, it's basketball, and we're just trying to share uh, a little fun and some knowledge along the way for uh, for the viewers. Gary, okay, you talked about the long climb. Uh, sort of spending 15 years with the organization before you were able to get into the position that you are now. Uh, and now you have a job that, you know, at least at the local TV level, only 30 people can say they have. Has this always been the ultimate goal for you? Has it always been in the back of your mind kind of striving for this play-by-play position? Uh, or did you, you know, maybe go through some different ideas about what you wanted to do with your career along the way? You know, it. Uh, I mean, sports in itself has always been, you know, my my main focus and and focal point. Uh, you know, and and getting a communications degree, but it wasn't until I arrived in Arizona, and it'll be thirty years in August, and I moved to Flagstaff, worked at a radio station at Flagstaff, and we were fortunate enough to be a a network affiliate of uh, the Suns of ASU and the Cardinals. And it was really probably after I first met Al McCoy, uh, when they were doing training camp on a regular basis up there in Flagstaff, and then getting to to watch and listen to the Suns games. Uh, I would drive down and get to as many games as I possibly could. But it was at that point that I really decided that this is where I want to be long-term, and that is what I want to do long-term. Uh, whether it was radio or TV, it was just uh, it was in my head and what I fixated on. Uh, of course, you know a lot of a lot of uh, uh, hills and valleys along the way. But yes, to answer your question, once I arrived in the in the valley, I, I knew at that point that this team is is you know who I wanted to be associated with. And that's interesting because you know for a lot of radio guys, there's a lot of uh, or working in media in general, there's a lot of market hopping. You're kind of a different situation. You've been in the valley now, close to 25 years, right? Yeah, as I said, I moved in. I moved to, to Flagstaff in uh, 1980, August of '89. Uh, so it'll be 30 years in Arizona. I lived two years in Flagstaff. So, yeah, uh, I've seen a lot of growth. Um, and you're right. Um, and, and there were some times during the course of the run where um, I, I had some other possible opportunities and and did kind of take a peek elsewhere but at the end of the day uh, I had a young family uh, that was you know just getting started at the time and just decided I, I just love the valley and everything that uh, that it had to offer and you know look at the end of the day it's also about quality of life and uh, I'm certainly glad I was able to to stick around and uh, finally get the ultimate payoff you know I think about this a lot with uh, local broadcasters you do sort of work for the team you kind of operate as a broadcaster and also a fan of the team 
But so many people are watching the NBA. It's grown to such a huge uh, popularity throughout the world. And so many people are watching all over the place. How much do you try to balance that sort of representing the team and sort of being a fan on the air with just focusing on the direct play-by-play and trying to be unbiased during the games? Is that difficult? Well, you know, not really. And and it's one of the things that I've taken uh, great pride in um, from, as I said, doing the, the Phoenix Mercury play-by-play for 20 years, uh, having done the Rattlers. Uh, did a lot of high school sports here in the Valley. I've always I've always tried to take a very fair and objective approach. Um, I feel that you know that I can be critical of the team if necessary, but you know it, it, my job as a play by play guy is to is to not really push that. And, and whether I was employed by the team or whether I was employed by you know a broadcast outlet. Uh, I've always felt that the the job of the play-by-play guy is to describe what is going on. And certainly you can insert some of your own opinions along the way. But uh, you you want to describe and and deliver the details, get the information to the fan, and do it, as I said, in a a fair, fun, objective way. And I, I feel like that that has always been kind of one of my calling cards. Yeah, I think you do a great job of that too. But you know, on the point of injecting some of your opinions, obviously Eddie Johnson, it's all opinions for him. He, he like, you know, he's the color guy. He likes to give uh, what he thinks about the game and his thoughts on on where it's going. Eddie Johnson's an old school guy, as we all know. We've all been listening to him for a long time as Suns fans. Where do you fall on the debate that he has? He's kind of against the whole stepping behind the three-point line. He's almost anti-analytics at this point. Uh, how, how do you think about that when he talks about that? He gets mad when guys look at their feet <laughs> and step behind the line. He wants them to shoot in rhythm. He, we all know how Eddie Johnson feels about this. And you rarely do you ever, of course, disagree with him or inject your personal opinion in that. But how do you feel about that? Well, I, I mean, I think that the thing that is important to, to know and understand about EJ is is, I mean, here's a guy that's played, you know, 17 plus years. And it, it's not that he's anti, you know, analytics, but he is a guy who was highly successful and played for coaches and organizations who, you know, didn't have all the mm-hmm. analytics. Look, at the end of the day, basketball is basketball. And I mean, you can. You point to a couple of games in particular just during the playoff run. And yes, the three-point mm-hmm. shot, there, there is no denying it is a huge part of the NBA. I think what drives Eddie crazy, and look, I'm right there with him. I may not always voice it on the air because, again, my job is to kind of keep the train moving. But um, it, it, it is kind of a, a head-scratcher when you see so many guys pass up the opportunity for an 18-foot shot and quickly try to get their feet back, take a dribble. And look, last night was a, a classic example. Like you watched the <laughs> yeah. game with you know, with Steph Curry, and the game, I don't want to say it was in hand, but Steph was dying to shoot that three-point shot, and he's probably not the best example to use just because of how good he is. But he ended up getting a traveling call, and had he just caught the pass and set his feet, you know, he's got a 20-foot shot, and it's two points instead of a turnover. And those are the things that, the drive Eddie crazy and this belief that, you know, you got to get up 35 or 43s, the volume uh, makes up for your shooting percentage. And the idea that shooting that three, passing up a fast break, I think of a perfect example with the Houston Rockets in their series with Golden State. There was a three on one break. And instead of the guys off the wing cutting to the basket, 
they all, <laughs> the, the two wings, fanned out to the three-point line. And it ended up being a, a terrible shot. And ultimately, you know, Golden State converts on the other end. So those are the things that that drive Eddie crazy. And I, if you want to call it going against analytics, he's certainly not completely against it. But at the end of the day, you have to take what the game and the flow is uh, is delivering to you. I personally love it when he goes on those uh, those tirades against it because <laughs> the rants. Yeah, <laughs> it's just for one, it's really entertaining to to hear him talk about that. And two, I know that it's pissing off a lot of people that are watching, and I kind of love that too because, like you said, it's not always. Uh, accurate and as we've seen there's a little more value in that mid-range area especially as the game slows down in the playoffs and teams start playing each other over and over again and they take away the three if you haven't shot that mid-range shot all season you're not going to be so good at it once you uh once you need to make it in the playoffs now one thing i've always wondered is you sit very close to the action you're right uh against the floor right in the center i've gone to a lot of games in my experience, that's not always the best vantage point to view these games from. The closer you are, it's awesome to see things up close and to hear what the players are saying, but you kind of have to see everything uh, that's happening on both sides of the floor. Is that the best vantage point in your opinion, or, or do you look at a monitor often, or how does it work? It, well, yeah, so there, there, are, there are a handful of arenas where we are on the floor, but the way that the, the seats are configured... Uh, the, the corners and the the near boundary, the near sideline can get cut off, so it, it can make it uh, challenging at times. And yes, we I also have to look at the monitor in those situations. And you know, there are times we're also we're blocked off, whether it might be by the official or oftentimes the coach uh, seems to to find a uh, a perch right in front of us. It feels like on uh, <laughs> on many nights there are a handful of arenas where we're up, kind of in that that middle media level, if you will. And that gives you a nice vantage point, but uh, it, it does take away from being able to, to hear some of the, the remarks made by the players uh, to kind of feel like you're tapping into some of the adjustments that are being made down on the sideline between the coaches and the players and just hearing the banter back and forth between, you know, your team and the other team. <laughs> that, and that's one of the real advantages of, of being down on the floor is to get to hear the, the back and forth the you know some of the the trash talk going on between the players and even some of the you know the opposing coaches and the oh. players down on the floor. <laughs> you know, you mentioned having known the legendary Al McCoy earlier on. How has Al helped you, maybe with some tips or advice or in guiding you over the past couple of years as you've transitioned into this role? Or are there other broadcasters that you've taken things from? Obviously, you don't steal catchphrases or anything like that, but just in terms of advice. Uh, as you've been finding your way along the path. Yeah, you know, well, Al and I, uh, again, because of my my different roles through the years, um, we've been able to, you know, we've been able to, give a, to develop a, a great, strong friendship. And, and actually, early on, it was Al who I discussed a couple of opportunities that, uh, that may have uh, been coming open at the time and whether I wanted to make that leap or not. But He's always been a great influence, a great sounding board for me, uh, a handful of other guys around the league. Certainly when I got the play-by-play -play job a couple of years ago, I had a handful of guys reach out to me. Um, Mike Breen in particular stands out just because of the, the level uh, that he is at you know, on a national basis and the respect level that he has 
from you know fellow broadcasters. Uh, but there's so many of them. Uh, it, it's it's just a great fraternity, and they're always there, willing to help and provide whatever assistance uh, they can for you. Now I got to go back to what you said. You said that you hear trash talk between opposing coaches and players sometimes. Well, it's it maybe more trash talk from the player and then the opposing coach giving them their <laughs> thoughts on you know <laughs> keep keep moving you know uh, no, no, yeah. nothing to see here basically um may, maybe some of the other banter comes from the assistant coaches not the head coach right. <laughs> which coach stands in front of you the most do you think <laughs> oh boy it's hard to it's hard to say because uh really just kind of how the, the game is flowing um i'm trying to think of of some right off of the top of my head. I know that, uh, you know, Mike, former Suns coach Mike D'Antoni likes to stand a yeah. lot. Uh, the, the one thing, mm-hmm. at least with, with Mike, is he will stay in pretty much a fixed position. There's a handful of coaches who, you know, who will move back and forth. And so it, you, you kind of feel like a tennis match in the regard that, you know, your head's <laughs> kind of trying to look around them uh, to the left and to the right. And in those situations, I'll just end up looking more at the monitor uh, because it just kind of defeats the purpose of trying to find that that mm-hmm. uh, right angle. Are there any Suns players who might be more vocal than we would gather from uh, just from watching on TV? You know, maybe young guys who who might be chatting a little bit more than we would expect? Um, I, you know, I don't think so. I mean, you know, Devin, Devin is, a, is a little bit of a trash talker, but he does it in a very kind of a, a quiet uh, assassin type way, which really shouldn't come as a big surprise. Um, you know, De- DeAndre talks a little bit, but he seems to to be kind of having more fun, and it's more playful talk with DeAndre. Uh, th- there isn't, you know, on this particular team this past year, there's not a lot of big trash talkers. You know, Kelly when he gets rolling, and you know, you'll, you'll see him talking smack to, to some of the guys as well. But uh, this particular group, you know, wasn't uh, wasn't big trash talkers as a whole. I, I know when I sat close to the close to the team, the person who talked the most was Jared Dudley. Now Jared Dudley's gone, but that guy talked the entire game in yes. the past. It <laughs> seems like he was always almost like a co- assistant coach, basically, just constantly. Yeah, Jared, Jared is uh, definitely probably one of the the top five or six I can think of all time in terms of uh, Suns trash talkers or just, you know, talkers in general. Now, you travel with the team, right? Correct. Now, do you talk to the players throughout that travel? Do you try and leave them alone and, and let them focus? Or is there stuff that you can do, maybe talk to the coaches, talk to other people associated with the team to bring that into the broadcast booth? Or do you try and kind of stay on your own? You know, typically the the way the, the seating chart is, is set up, um, and just because of the amount of time that we're around one another as it is, uh, we really try and allow, you know, the the freedom and the ability for the players and the coaches. Now, there's been a couple of times where I've walked up and and talked for a minute or two to a coach, maybe after a game about something that that happened, a call, play, uh, the win, the loss, what have you. Uh, but for the most part, everybody on the plane, that's kind of their their sanctuary at a time to kind of escape a little bit. Um, especially if, if you have played a game, you know, with the players quickly shower, we get on a bus, we head to the tarmac, get on the plane and, and fly. So the players have already dealt and discussed the game 
with the the local media there. And so there's really nothing, especially if I don't have another broadcast the next day, there's nothing I'm going to, to really be able to glean from them at that time. So all you shoot around and practices and those situations, or maybe if I see them at the hotel the next morning after breakfast, those are really better situations to have those kind of, uh, uh, you know, those kind of communications and that dialogue. From the fan perspective, over the past two years, as, as you've been in this role, I think what we've been hearing a lot is, uh, well, obviously the result hasn't been great. <laughs> and we've been hearing about maybe frustration from members of the team. We've seen some frustrations boil over. Um, and, and there's been a lot of roster turnover. In fact, there have been 39 distinct players uh, on the roster over the past two seasons as you've been the play-by-play guy. Do you see that frustration on the road as you travel with the team? Do you see that start to seep in and, uh, you know, not necessarily disagreements or anything, but just, you know, can you tell when the when the players are in uh, better or lower spirits as you travel with them? Oh, certainly. I mean, look, it, it, 82 games, it's a, it's a grind. Um, and, and I know how I know how I feel as, you know, as a broadcaster and I'm, you know, I'm twice the age of uh, of most of these guys. So, look, as I said earlier, nobody likes to lose. And, you know, you look at this season and, and there was that stretch in seven weeks and the losses, you know, continue to pile up, but they were so close. I mean, there was a half dozen games and it was something that, you know, Monty even addressed today. So many games where they had leads in the third quarter and even early fourth quarter, but just mm-hmm. couldn't close the deal. And, you know, those those were the nights where you felt for the players as they got on the plane because they realized just how close they were. But in in other ways, it was so far away. Uh, so, yeah, but nothing in the sense of any kind of vocal venting. You could just see in their eyes and their body language that, you know, that they were hurting, that they were frustrated. But, you know, when you consider the, the number of losses this team has had the last couple of years, um, I, you know, I, I felt like the guys conducted and handled themselves, you know, as professionally as you possibly could under the circumstances. Do you ever feel the need to come up with some sort of catchphrase? I know there's a couple, there's a couple of things that you do say quite often, but I know that, of course, Al McCoy has Shazam. He's got a few different things that he can say. Or do you ever feel like throwing a Shazam in there every once in a while to give a tribute to him? <laughs> no, you know, the the Shazam, it's not copyrighted, but in my book, it uh, it might as well be. <laughs> that That is... That is for one man and one man only to uh, to, to call. I've uh, have, have never felt uh, compelled to do so. And, and you know, look, every, every broadcaster has, um, you know, maybe has certain things that they'll say consistently through the broadcast. And, and I, I think more you'll find more radio play-by-play guys with catchphrases because radio is just such a, a different delivery. Um, and especially, you know, there's, I don't know off the top of my head how many, but I know there are several radio guys who, who do the broadcast solo. Uh, so they have, they have a completely different kind of beast on their hands, if you will, in how they deliver the broadcast. And, and I think radio has always, uh, the fans and even broadcasters have kind of felt compelled to have and create those catchphrases, whereas television, and maybe not quite so much, just because you have the visual effect to to lean on. And yeah, there's a there's a handful of things that I'll say uh, fairly consistently through the course of a broadcast, but I don't have any one 
staple uh, in terms of, you know, the three-point shots or dunks or anything like that. Um, I just kind of have uh, uh, a tool belt of, uh, of descriptions that I like to kind of use, and those are the ones that I roll with from, uh, from night to night. Do you, uh, looking around the league, do you have any favorites from other announcers that you'd like to pick out? Like one controversial one is uh, Grant and a pair with the Sacramento Kings. If you don't like that, you don't like NBA basketball, for instance. Like, <laughs> I love that one. I know some, right. some people have some stuff to say about that, but do you have, uh, you know, one in particular that you really like? Um, well, you know, the, the one that's always uh, that I've always enjoyed is, is, again, you know, talking about Mike Breen, you know, on the three point shots and he doesn't use it all the time. And I think that's what makes it so, uh, so impactful and so effective. But, you know, his bang on the on the three point shots, um, I, I've always enjoyed that. And, you know, I, I in, in many ways, I've tried to to bring a kind of national telecast type appeal and feel to to our broadcasts mm. more so than yeah. than localizing it and again being in broadcasting for as many years as i have i know some people want and kind of crave those catchphrases uh but that's just not something that uh, that i want to lean on and necessarily you know be known for i just i want to be known as a good, solid broadcaster, uh, and whether you're a fan of the opposing team or whether you're just a basketball fan in general, the the feeling like it's an enjoyable broadcast for you, whether you're a Suns fan or not. I think it's smart to have that kind of approach with league pass and how famous these players are. They're stars. A guy like Devin Booker, even on a losing team, is a star, and you never know how many people across the world are tuning in to watch these games. So so taking that approach of trying to bring a national feel to it makes a lot of sense. And I agree that you you accomplished that very well, I would say, um, throughout these games. I do want to give a shout out to Ralph Lawler. I love the oh man. Right. <laughs> and I love and the lob, the jam. That's another that's another great catch. Yeah, phrase. Ralph had the bingo, you know, for for the three points. Yeah, shots. bingo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's he's great. Now you've been traveling, obviously, for the last few years. I'm not sure. Did you travel when you were doing the uh, the sideline announcing as well? Uh, no, I, I did not. So the sideline announcing was just for the home games. Um, the you know when the team was in the the playoffs the last time, I was still doing some some radio pre and post. So I did travel and do uh, some sideline during uh, the uh, those last couple of playoff runs, but. Uh, the, the previous five years, all the sideline work was just done strictly at home. What is your favorite arena to walk into and call games? Oh. Outside of the Suns, of course. Home yeah. games are the most fun. Um, well, you know, there, there, are, there have been a handful of arenas that have opened, you know, new arenas that have opened here over the last few years. Uh, Milwaukee's brand new arena, beautiful facility. Mm. Uh, Atlanta's got a great setup. Sacramento has, uh, has a beautiful facility. Um, you know, I, I enjoy Toronto, Toronto, the way it is structured, we only get there, you know, once a year, but you know, it, it's a hockey arena and it kind of has that cathedral type feel to it and they get the sellout crowds in there. It can get you know, extremely noisy. And those are, uh, those are probably some of the ones that stand out, you know, to me right now and, and, uh, Barclay center, another one for, uh, for Brooklyn. And then, you know, just New York, it's Madison Square Garden. So there's just a certain appeal yeah. to that place. Uh, getting to do a, a game there, you know, once a year is uh, is always fun. Okay, Ray, before we let you go in a little bit, I, I want to talk 
just a little bit about the current situation of the team. First of all, do you have any thoughts on the hiring of Monty Williams? Um, I assume you haven't had the opportunity to speak to him yet, but. Uh, well, actually, I did. Uh, we, we, I was down there for the press conference today, and then prior to the press conference, we had an all-employee uh, get-together with Monty, so I was able to moderate that. So did get a chance to meet Monty, uh, talk to him a little bit um, after that, prior to him meeting the, uh, the rest of the media. And look, I mean, it, it was an unfortunate situation with Igor because I was a huge Igor fan, both as a person and a, and, uh, and a head coach. Uh, I just think it was kind of a, a bad set of circumstances, bad timing, if you will, for Igor. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind he will land on his feet. But having said that, you know, if this team was going to make a change, because to me, that was my biggest concern is just because there had been so much constant change and looking for some kind of stability, you weren't going to get that, you know, constantly switching coaches. But with that said, uh, they got the best man for the job. Um, and uh, I, I've always had a great deal of respect for Monty. Certainly what he went through personally, uh, you you look at, uh, at a man and the way he handled himself uh, with a, a young family at that time. And to see him come back from that, you, you just hear the, the reverence around the league, both players and coaches, uh, of, of how they feel about this guy. And, you know, that, that was revealed today um, with, the, with the employees. He had some very, you know, emotional and impactful words with the employees today. And he's a straight shooter. You know, this is a guy that lives in a black and white world, and that's exactly what this team needs. And I thought it was interesting. You know, he made some comments today. He said, I, you know, I know the player's excited. Everybody's excited. We'll, we'll see how excited they are when, you know, I'm jumping on their butt to get back defensively. So this is going to be a no-nonsense guy. Uh, he is going <laughs> to have some ground rules, and you, you better be able to abide by them because if not, you'll, you'll have a, uh, a spectator seat over there on the bench. I love it. I love it. Accountability. That's what these players have been asking for for a few years. I think they're about to get it. Now, before we let you go, K-Ray, I have to ask one favor. In full broadcast voice, can you give us uh, your listening to the Timeline <laughs> podcast with Mike and Sam? <laughs> I would be happy to, guys. Not, uh, not a problem. <clears throat> so here we go. You are listening to the Timeline broadcast with Mike and Sam, the best in podcast business. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> That's perfect. That's as good as it gets. Uh, K-Ray. Add a little flavor for you there at the I end. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone go follow Kevin Ray on Twitter. I don't feel like you have enough followers for how good you are. At K-Ray1. Everyone go follow K-Ray. He's a great follow. And of course, thank you so much for everything you do for the team. And thank you once again for joining us here on The Timeline. My pleasure, guys. And I really appreciate your, uh, your passion and uh, what you're able to deliver to the fans, both in Twitter and here on your podcast. Really enjoy it. From long range, whoever said freeze a crowd? And how many balls could a ball chucker chuck if a ball chucker could chuck balls? Who knows? With the sweet finger roll. Well, blow me over. That was embarrassing. Uncool, dude. You shot blocked me. Rejected. And the doctor just told him to turn his head and cough. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.